All right, well, so we are continuing our series in the book of Ephesians, and today we're going to be looking at this section in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. We kind of read the text earlier um, during the service where uh, this text that we're going to spend the time looking at uh, is pretty much a shift from what we've been doing for the past couple weeks, right? And so this section in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is shifting from talking about the theology of the Christian life to now looking at the practical ways to live the Christian life, right? And so in the first three sections, or the first three chapters that we covered, uh, we see that Paul is giving us the theology of the Christian life. We saw these amazing ways that Paul defined what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be in Christ. And it refers to the spiritual union and intimate relationship that believers have with Jesus as a, as a result of the faith that we place in him. And so now he's shifting into looking at standards and expectations that we have given by God uh, to live as Christians. And so throughout the first three chapters, Paul gave us this theology. In chapter 1, we see how Paul talked about in Christ we are chosen. And we see this in, ch in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, uh, or, or chapter 1, 3 to 5, where, where Paul talks about how we are chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God had us in mind. And so before the foundation of the world, God had you in mind, both good things and bad things that happen in your life, every single thing that took place in our lives are perfectly designed to bring us to this point where we can understand that our lives have meaning in Christ. And so before the foundation of the world, Paul says that you were chosen for God to bring you to this point where you can understand your meaning and your purpose. And so God specifically chose and called individuals to be his own to show that we are his workmanship. And we talked about this. And then he goes on and talked about how in Christ we are redeemed and forgiven by him. And so regardless of our past and all the mistakes that we've done, so through the blood of Jesus, Paul talks about how we can experience his grace and his mercy in Christ. And then he talks about this in verse 7 in chapter 1, where he says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so our past mistakes, Paul says, doesn't define us, but we have been given a new beginning in Christ because of his work on the cross. And then we go into chapter 2 where Paul talks about in Christ we are united and reconciled. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 he says that we are united and reconciled first to God. He fixes the broken relationship that we have with him because of our sins. Then we're united and reconciled with one another. He fixes the broken relationship that we have with one another because of our cultural or social or ethnic differences. And then he talks about how God tore down this dividing wall of hostility and he's made us one in Christ. And then in verses 13 through 18 in chapter 2, he talks about how now we have direct access to God, where the cross creates this bridge for us, giving us the freedom to come into God's presence without shame, without guilt. We can come to God confident, not needing a priest or a prophet or a pope 
right? We can come to God and we are welcome and accepted and we can come to him freely. And then we see that presence to, or that, that gift, that access to his presence leads us to power. He talks about that in chapter three, verses 17 through 19, that in Christ, we have incredible power, incredible strength, where we can live this life that he has called us to live. And this is not an easy life that he has called us to live, but it's a life that he gives us power to make it possible for us to live, right? If we stay connected with him. And so Paul takes time from chapter one to chapter three, going through the theology of the Christian life to describe how we, we can see God's manifold wisdom displayed in us. And then now in chapter four, Paul is saying, let's get busy. Let's get to work. Let's put this theology that we've learned into practice, right? Let's take our theology and put it into practice. Listen, it's not enough. It's not enough to just go through the Christian life just knowing theology. It's not enough to just go through the Christian life, right, just knowing these information, these right information. It's not enough just to come to church, right, to listen to a 30-minute sermon. Usually mine's are 30 minutes and others are an hour. Um, <laughs> But it's not enough just to come and listen to these messages and then turn around and just go to lunch. Or it's not enough to just read our Bibles and then go to work or watch TV. It's not enough just to receive these information. Knowing right theology is not the end of our spiritual journey. Right? And so this is what Paul wants to get at. Right? Just having right information is not enough. The right information that we have about God should lead us to action. It should lead us to the right application of our theology. Right? Satan has right theology. And he knows theology better than any one of us. But his right theology did not lead him to right action. Right? And so this is what Paul is talking about. Even though we see we can have right theology, like Satan who has right theology and even have experienced the fullness of God, being in God's presence, but then he still rebelled. Which tells me that having right theology or right information about God does not guarantee a surrendered heart. Right? It's not enough. Our theology should lead us to right action. The application of our theology is the evidence of what we truly believe. And so this is kind of like what Paul is getting at. Having right theology is not enough. And so Paul is taking the second half of this letter to discuss how we are to live in light of our theology. How we are to live in light of our theology. How we are to live at work with our coworkers in light of our theology how we are to live at home with our families, with our spouses in light of our theology, our relationship with one another, and even in our private life, when no one is looking or there's no one to judge us, or even in our thoughts and our desires, how we live out our lives truly determines what we really believe, what we really believe. 
And so this is what we're going to be looking at in this section of chapter 4, the way that we respond to what we know truly determines our faith. And this is where we're going, right? And so in verse 17, so Paul begins this section by saying, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, right? So Paul he uses this phrase to set up this section. He uses this phrase, now this I say and testify in the Lord. This is a very important phrase that he is using because what he's about to say, he wants us to know that it's not grounded in his truth. The information that he's about to convey, he wants us to know that this is not man-made information. This is not a man-made message. It's not grounded in his truth, but this is a testimony in the Lord, which means he's not delivering a man-made message, but this message that he's delivering is from God, and because it's from God, we need to pay careful attention to it. This message contains God's standards and God's expectations for the believer. If we are in Christ, Paul wants to know that God has a standard or expectation he holds us to. And these standards and expectations are not subjective. They're not negotiable. They are based on God's perfect, unchanging nature rooted in his wisdom and love. Right? So Paul wants us to know that we don't make up the standards of how we should live the Christian life. We conform to the standard that God has given us to his, in his word. We don't determine that, but God does. You and I can't decide what Christianity should look like. We don't. We can't decide to change those standards in order for us to be more relatable or acceptable in the culture, and we try to do that. And Paul is saying, no, this is God's standard. It's not negotiable. It's not subjective. Right? God has given us everything that we need to live the Christian life and to be effective, right? To be effective in the culture and what he asks for us and what he needs for us is just our obedience. He's given us everything that we need. He just needs our obedience. And so God has given us perfectly clear guidelines in his word and how we should live and our role is to trust him, to conform to those guidelines, to trust him, and to trust that these guidelines are best for us because they're rooted in God's wisdom, God's holiness, and God's love, right? And so now, what are these guidelines that Paul talks about, right? Or what are these standards that we are to follow if we are a Christian? And so we see the first expectation that Paul gives us or that God gives us in verse 17, where Paul says, choose to walk differently from the ways of the Gentiles or from the ways of the world. And so Paul says this, now this I say and testify of the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Now, 
if you are in the church right now receiving this letter in Ephesus for the first time, you would be probably thinking, you're probably thinking, like, this, is, this, this is weird. This is a weird instruction that Paul is giving because this church is made of predominantly Gentiles. And for now, Paul to say, hey, listen, Gentiles, don't be like Gentiles anymore. Like, that seems kind of weird. Right? How else should they walk? Because this church is made up of predominantly Gentiles. And so being Gentiles was their very nature. And so we see these people who were born in a Gentile world, born in a Gentile culture, having a Gentile way of thinking. They're born in a Gentile worldview, moral standards, religious practice, a perspective about life. Being Gentile was all that they knew. And then now Paul is telling them, stop acting like Gentiles. But what does he mean by that? What is Paul trying to get at? And I think the point that Paul is trying to make is that we have a new identity, a new self, when we come to know Christ. We have a new self, and that is the self that we are, the new identity, and that is the identity that we are to walk in. And so Paul wasn't telling them, listen, stop identifying with your racial or your ethnic background or preferences. He wasn't telling them that those things don't matter anymore. He wasn't telling them to stop being Gentiles and now become Jews. But I think the point that he was trying to make is that in Christ, we have a new identity that transcends the ethnic and the social and the cultural backgrounds that we have, right? In Christ, we have become one. We have become part of his body, the church. We share a spiritual unity and equality that goes beyond our earthly distinction. And so when Paul talks about this, he also talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28, where he says that in Christ there is neither Jew or Gentile. Right? And so when he says this, to no longer walk like Gentiles, he means don't place labels anymore on yourself that brings divisions like the Gentiles do. Don't bring these labels. Don't be divided over race or culture or preference, social status, the way that the Gentiles are divided. Don't set up camps. Don't set up racial or political camps like the Gentiles do. But in Christ, this new identity should bring us together as family, right? And so this is what Paul, even with all our different, with all of our differences, Paul is saying like, this should bring us together as, as, as family. And so he's telling this to this church to get rid of those camps that's dividing fellowship, right? Camps that wants the church to be more Jews and, or, or more, more of a Gentile. And that was some of the tension that was in the church, right? Or for us, maybe camps that want this church to be more white or more black. Or maybe camps in this church that want us to sing more black worship music or white worship music, right? Or for us as pastors to preach more like white pastors or black pastors, right? We have camps all over our church. And Paul is saying we should not be divided by those things. Right? So he says that we have a new identity 
that transcends the earthly one that we have been given. Now, I think Paul is also using that point to actually hit a deeper point, right? And so there's another point I think that he's trying to make. I think Paul is also referring to not walking in those deeply ingrained things that are predisposed in our nature, right? Those deeply ingrained things that are predisposed in our nature or things that we have been conditioned to believe all of our lives to be true, right? So see, the Gentiles were conditioned to believe and to accept certain practices and lifestyle to be true, right? And even things that were offensive to God, they had accepted to be normal as part of the culture and even made lawful. And so these were things that was part of their lifestyle. And so these Gentiles were just being Gentiles. They were just living in their truth, walking in their identity, because that's what they were brought up in, and it was deeply ingrained in them. And there are certain things that if we study the, the, the context, the history of Ephesus, these Gentiles practiced things like pagan idolatry. It was their custom to have their own gods, where they put trust and in in, in, in faith in these gods, right, rather than putting faith in the true God. It was their custom to practice things like sexual immorality, right? It was their custom and even lawful to engage in things like prostitution or polygamy or same-sex relationships. And some of these practices were even happening in the temple by people who were religious, right? And then there are practices like greed and materialism, the love of money, prioritizing money over people, engaging in dishonest business and exploiting others for their personal gain. And then there are practices like all types of spiritualism. Ephesus was a hub for all types of religion and there was no absolute truth. All these religions were inspirational or valid. They all could coexist equally and they were engaged in all types of activities with no self-control or moral boundaries. And so these were deeply ingrained in the culture and the life of the people in Ephesus. And so Paul saying to no longer walk as the Gentiles, he's saying, man, don't even walk in the ways that seems right to you. Don't even walk in the ways that seems lawful. Don't walk in the ways that even seems popular in the culture. Don't walk in the ways that seems acceptable. And I think what we see even in that, Paul is saying, yes, there could be a reality where we are born in this world and we are conditioned to accept and to believe certain things and even things in our bodies that we may have as a desire or inclination or that we are predisposed to, to see as natural. Paul is saying, now that you are in Christ, the transforming power of Christ has radically made you new and that he has given you a new nature. He has given you a new mind. He's given you a new desire to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So in Christ, whatever we were predisposed or whatever is ingrained in us, in Christ, he has given us a new nature 
He's changed our mind and changed our heart, and we no longer have to submit to those things. And this is what Paul is saying. He gives us those new natures, a new heart, a new life. And so even those natural things, those things that are acceptable, it doesn't have to rule us. It doesn't have to rule us because we have a new nature in God and we belong to a new kingdom. Then the second expectation Paul gives us, he says, choose to think differently from the ways of the Gentiles. Choose to think differently. First thing he says is don't walk like the Gentiles. Now he's saying think differently from the Gentiles. In verse 18, Paul says, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And so in verse 18, Paul says, in order to begin walking in this new direction, we need to change the way that we think. We need to change the way that we think. There needs to be a shift that takes place in our minds. And then Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Our minds, our minds have to be renewed before we can see that the ways of this world, the ways of the Gentiles are not the ways of Christ. And so God has to do a complete shift of a worldview, a complete shift in our thinking, because our minds have been so conditioned to believe that the ways of the Gentiles are right. And so this is why Paul is saying we need a renewal of our minds. Our minds have to be renewed in order for us to see that the ways of Christ is good for us, is good for us, and it's the best possible way for us to live, right? And so by the renewal of your mind, Paul is talking about unlearning patterns, unlearning behaviors that have been influenced or that we have been influenced by the world, unlearning those things that doesn't align to God's truth, patterns and behaviors that doesn't lead to true fulfillment, patterns and behaviors that doesn't lead to joy or eternal significance, or patterns and behaviors that are not satisfying, and to allow God's word to reshape our thinking. See, the ways of the Gentiles, when Paul talks about this, the mind of the Gentiles, the thinking of the Gentile is broken, right? And it doesn't mean that it's broken in a sense that the Gentiles or the world, unbelievers are not intelligent, they're not smart or rational, because unbelievers, the unbelieving mind can be very intelligent. Uh, just the other day, um, and you may have seen this, uh, I saw this video of Apple talking about like this new Apple Vision Pro that's coming out, right? This thing that's going to change the virtual world, which is just amazing when you think about the technology that human beings can create, right? So throughout, you know, our experience, we see amazing things that the mind can create. But then even with all of those intelligence, even with all of those intelligence and technologies that we can create, we still can't figure out what life is all about. We still can't figure out what life is all about. We still can't figure out 
our moral problems, right? There's no invention right now to the solution to our moral problems or to our pursuit for joy, right? Because you have people with all types of money, but then they're still not happy and still don't have joy, and we still can't figure that out. We still can't figure out love. You got people who are beautiful, but then still struggle with insecurities, all types of uh, uh, loneliness. We still can't figure out the problems of humanity, right? And so what Paul is getting at is there's no cure to that. Our minds are broken. And now what Paul wants to lead us to, if we come to an understanding of who God is, we should find the solution of those problems in him. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't have any of these problems in our lives. But what he says is that in Christ, he has given us a new mind to help us understand that God is the only one that can be the solution. And God is the only one that we need for these issues. And so it's the shifting of our minds from trusting in the world to trusting now in God's provision. And Paul is saying, in order to change that direction, we have to change our thinking. And so now we see Paul goes into these descriptions of if we keep going back to the ways of the Gentiles, the way of thinking like the Gentile, how we can easily spiral back into our old ways. And so Paul gives us these descriptions. He talks about going back will lead to ignorance, where we think that we know better than God. That changing of the mind, if we don't change our minds, is going to lead to ignorance, he says, where we think we know better than God, where we think we have life figured out, where we think that we need God. And then this ignorance will lead to a hardness of heart, where we are drawn away from God and we lose sight of him. And in this hardness of heart, is where we become callous, where we start to live our lives on our own terms as if God doesn't exist. And we start setting up our own standards. We live by our own rules. We no longer feel the conviction of God to direct our lives. And then we see the spiraling of back into where Paul talks about this darkness, this hardness of heart, and then where we become completely separated from God. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't walk in that way. Change your mind so that it doesn't lead you to a separation from God, this hardness of heart, this slow erosion that ultimately will lead to a spiraling of your life being out of control. And so, and this is why I think when Paul says no longer walk in the ways of the Gentiles, I think this text is screaming at us to stop flirting with our old life. Stop flirting with our old life. If we keep flirting with our old life in our old ways, in our old ways of thinking, our old habits, it would only lead to us losing sight of God. It'll take our minds and it take our hearts and we will lose sight of God. And so Paul is saying, stop flirting with the old life. And I think so many of us are still flirting with our past life and we just don't want to let it go just don't want to let it go. We don't want to let go of our old habits. We don't want to let go of unhealthy relationships. 
We don't want to let go of old uh, uh, attitudes. Um, And so Paul is saying, listen, let go of those things. Stop flirting with resentment. Stop flirting with gossiping. Stop flirting with the explicit things that we watch or the explicit things that we say. Stop flirting with your old life, right? And so I think what Paul is also getting at is when we are holding on to our old life, it's communicating a lack of trust in God to provide us something good, right? Rather than letting go of those things and pursuing what is good, we think that holding on to this old life gives us something meaningful. And Paul is saying it doesn't. And so he says to let it go. And he says to choose to look differently. And this is the third expectation that he gives us. Choose to look differently from the old ways of the Gentiles. And we see this in verse 22 to 32, where Paul gives us now these examples of what it looks like to get rid of the old life, put off the old life, and then to put on a new life, he says. He says, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires and to renew in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true godliness and holiness. And so this is the idea of sanctification, which is pretty much a fancy term that we use, which means to look like Jesus. It's the process that God takes us through to refine us, to make it look more like Jesus. And so every day we are to make these conscious decisions to walk in the mind and the attitude and the likeness of Jesus. And that's not something that happens passively, but this is something that we choose. This is something that happens actively, right? So it's not something that just happened casually. Paul says we are commanded to look like Jesus. And this is the standard that has been set for us. And we are responsible to make these decisions and to make these choices that reflects Jesus. And so we are responsible to make sure that this old self dies and our new life, our new self reflects Christ. And then Paul talks about this again in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Which is such a powerful text when you see it, because it reminds us that we are in Christ, and the old self has died with him on the cross, has been put to death with him, and the new self that we have is alive in him to walk in newness of life, right? And so those two lives can't coexist. And this is why Paul gives us this imagery of putting off and putting on. And so like how we change our clothes every single day, when our clothes is dirty, we remove it and we put it aside and we put on clean ones, clean clothes that have been washed. Right? I want you to picture the jacket that I have on as my old self, my old ways of walking, right? 
And so what Paul is saying, we are to take this off, to put off the old self. And then he gives us these specific examples of what it means to take this off, take off the old self. He goes into verse 22, where he says, put off old desires. Take off these old desires that you have. Any desires that does not align to God's desires, Paul says to take it off. And we need to put it aside. Right? Put it aside. When we are in Christ, our desires are transformed and it should look like Christ's desires. And whatever that doesn't look like his desires, we take it off and we put it aside. Right? What are some of the desires that we have that doesn't look like Christ that needs to come off? Paul says to take them off. And then he goes into these specific details of how to do that. In verse 24 and 32, in verse 24, he says to put off lies. Put off lies. Now, in all of these examples, I don't think Paul is giving us these moral checklists and behaviors to follow. I think he's trying to get at the root of each one. And so when he says take off lies, he's talking about don't walk in falsehood, walk in truth. Don't appear to be one way in reality and we are something else. Don't appear to be one way and it doesn't align with what you truly believe or what you say you believe. Walk with integrity. Avoid pretending. Be authentic. Be authentic in your belief and be authentic in your action. Let your belief and your action align. He says, take off lying. Then in verse 26, he talks about take off anger. Put off anger from you. Right? And he's not talking about don't be angry, don't be mad, because he goes on, he says, be angry, but don't sin in your angry, in your anger. And so the anger that he's talking about is the type of anger that we nurse, right? The type of anger that leads and produce resentment or grudge or uh, a bitterness. Anger that leads to an unforgiveness uh, of unforgiven spirit. He says, don't nurse those anger because it destroys you, but then it destroys relationship. And this is why he says, he goes on, he talks about don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. Don't nurse it to give the devil a strategic opportunity to use you as a tool to destroy others or to destroy your life. He says, don't nurse those angers. Put it off. And in verse 28, he goes and talks about put off stealing. Put off stealing. A thief must steal no more. And I don't think he's talking about when we steal hotel towels, right? Or a pen from work, right? I don't think that's the type of stealing that he's talking about. I think the type of stealing that he's talking about is an entitlement spirit. Don't have an entitlement spirit. People who only care about gaining for themselves, people who deprive others and don't see the need to be generous. People who care for their well-being and not others. People who look out only for themselves. People who 
want to be served but doesn't like to serve. He says, don't steal. Or people who come to city group and just eat but never bring food. He says, stop stealing, <laughs> right? And then he goes on, listen to what he says. He says, share. He says, share. He says, share your, I'm sorry, right? <laughs> but please bring food when you come to city group. Um, but, but then he goes on, he says, share. He says, share your time, talent, and your treasures, right? Share with one another. Thieves steal no more. And then he talks about, verse 29, put off offensive talk. Just take that off. Take that off. And again, I don't think he's talking about using foul language. I think he's talking about using words to build each other up and not tear each other down. Right? Because James talks about this also in James chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, where James says, look at this, he says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and then with it, we curse human beings. The same tongue that was just singing, how great is our God, but then the same tongue who is cursing the people who are made in his image. And then James says, this shouldn't be. Because out of the same mouth come praising and, and cursing my brothers and sisters, this should not be. And so this is what Paul is saying. Take off these offensive talk that tears each other down, but doesn't build and edify one another. Talk that doesn't bless others. He says those are a contradiction. That's a contradiction. He says to put it off. And then in verse 30, he says to put off the old attitudes. Of old attitudes and behaviors that grieves the Holy Spirit. Put off, take off any attitude that contradicts the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness of God in our lives. Attitudes and behaviors that doesn't make it look like the great love of God and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross had an effect on us, right? Because when we continue to grieve the Holy Spirit in unrepentant sin and disobedience, we make a lie out of the gospel. We stifle the power of the Holy Spirit from working in our lives. But then in contrast, Paul says, in verse 32, to put on a new lifestyle. He says to put on a new lifestyle. And so Paul says we are to take off this old self and then to put on a new self. To put on a new self. We are to put on this new lifestyle. And he says this lifestyle is a lifestyle of kindness, a lifestyle of compassion, a lifestyle of forgiveness. And this is, this is a lifestyle that reflects the character of God. We take off the self, the old self, and then we put on the new self. Now, I think sometimes, rather than taking off the old self and putting on the new self, I think what we try to do we try to make the old self and the new self coexist, 
right? We try to live both with the old self and the new self. We try to wear both lives at the same time, even when it doesn't fit, even when it's uncomfortable. We try to make both lives coexist, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's not going to work together. We put on the new life, but then at the same time, we're trying to preserve the old life or aspects about the old life. Right? We all have aspects about the old life that we want to hold on to, that we don't want to let go, and then at the same time, hold on to Jesus. Rather than letting go of the old life, we want to make both coexist. And Paul is saying it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And you can fill in the blank whatever those things are that we're trying to hold on to rather than letting go. We want the benefit and the privilege of being children of God, but then at the same time, the benefit of holding on to the world. And Paul says that we have to let it go. It can't coexist. And then we wonder why God is not blessing us because it doesn't work. And then we're wondering why we're not growing in our faith. We're wondering why we're not feeling the closeness of God because rather than taking it off, we're trying to make those two lives coexist. And Paul is saying, God won't let that happen. He will not let that happen because those two lives can't coexist and God will continue to work against it until he alone has preeminence, until he alone takes first place and the only place. So he's saying, like, you can't live this way. You can't live this way. And then, you know, Jesus talks about this and the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 21, he talks about this man who came to him wanting to live like this. And this man came to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me first go back to bury my father and I will follow you. And Jesus says to this man, follow me. And the emphasis was to follow me now. And then he goes on, he says, leave the dead to bury the dead. And so this man came to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, listen, I want to follow you. But then at the same time, I want to stay committed to my old life and then go back home and have the privilege to be with my family and take care of my dad. And then when he dies, then I can fully commit to you. And you would think that Jesus will find this commendable. But instead, Jesus says to this man, let it go. Let the dead bury the dead. And that seems harsh. But he was saying, you can't live like this. You got to let it go. And it's not easy. It's costly. It's a sacrifice. But Jesus is saying, 
You've got to let it go. And he's also asking this man, and he's also asking us, am I worth it to let it go? Am I worth it? Is Christ worth it to let it go and to hold on to him and him only? For him to have preeminence in your life, is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth it to make the decision to leave behind our old lives, to take off the old man, to take off our old desires, to take off our old ways of thinking? Is Christ worth it to fully surrender to him and to follow him wholeheartedly? Is Christ worth it to put off everything about your old life, you name it, fill in the blank, whatever that is, that you are trying to hold on to, but then at the same time trying to include Jesus in it? Is Christ worth it to just leave it all behind for him and him alone? Is he worth it to embrace completely, wholeheartedly, this new life that he is calling us to live? Is he worth putting off the old and to put on the new? And I think that's the call for every single one of us today that Paul is saying, no longer walk in the old ways of the world. God paid a precious price to redeem you out of that old ways, but for us to go back. And he's saying, do you understand the depth of his love that by going back, make it seem like it wasn't worth it? And if we do understand the depth of his love, we will let go of our old life and cling to him because our old life has nothing compared to our new life. And so Christ and Jesus is asking every single one of us today, are you willing to take off your old life and to put on the new life, to walk in the newness of life that he is calling us to? Let's pray. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.